to be part of the process that opens those possibilities instead of closes them is an extraordinary experience. This is Alice. This is Shafali. And you're listening to Pete's Admit. Alice, medicine has changed pretty dramatically in the past month in the setting of COVID-19. One of the biggest changes has been the rapid emergence of telemedicine. And we think that this is going to continue to expand even after this pandemic is over. But telemedicine is an area in which I feel like many of us have little to no experience. Yes, I agree. So today we're sitting down with Dr. Patricia Kapunin. She's the medical director of our Adolescent Health Center, and she started her career as a physician in the U.S. Army. She also has an MPH, and she's going to walk us through how to do a smooth adolescent telemedicine visit. Awesome. Before we dive in, let's start with some telehealth basics. Yeah. So what's the actual definition of telehealth? So the American College of Physicians defines telehealth as the remote delivery of healthcare services and clinical information using telecommunications technology to improve a patient's health. Okay, and then what are the big things that we need to keep in mind when we're conducting a telemedicine appointment? I think big picture, keeping in mind that you're on camera. So visually, you want to be sitting in a room that is uncluttered with minimal distractions. It should be a quiet room. We're going to try to minimize background noise. It should be a private room. And remembering that at least waist up, you should be wearing professional attire. Yes. And then something that I thought was interesting when we were reviewing institutional guidelines is that you really shouldn't be eating and drinking anything. I think it's obvious to me not to eat anything during a patient appointment, but I often am taking sips of something on autopilot when I'm sitting down at my computer, and I, and, but I wouldn't bring my drink into a clinic visit otherwise. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. So what role does HIPAA play in all of this? Many major EMRs have integrated telehealth platforms. It's important that whatever platform you're using, it should be the HIPAA compliant version. But what does it actually mean to be HIPAA compliant? That's a good question. So your telemedicine vendor must have 128-bit encryption, and it must be password protected. And they have to sign a business associate agreement with the healthcare provider that commits to being responsible for keeping your patient information secure and reporting security breaches involving personal healthcare information. Right, so you cannot be recording these sessions either. They don't have that capability and you would never record a patient visit. Exactly. As residents, it's important that we continue to advocate for further training using these systems and platforms. And we also think it's important to mention that we're gonna be talking really broadly about telehealth today, but for more specific guidelines, it's important that you use the protocols in place in your specific clinical setting. Yes. And without further ado, here's Dr. Kapunin. So as we move further into this pandemic, we're shifting a lot of our adolescent health visits from in-person visits to visits via telehealth. What major tenants of these visits do you think will make doing telehealth a little bit tricky? Telehealth is tricky in general. There are many barriers that adolescents face to care. And in some ways, trying to do care virtually piles additional barriers on top of that. Uh, In terms of health-seeking, Teenagers are not just emerging decision makers, but they're emerging consumers of healthcare services. So something we feel strongly about in adolescent medicine is not just teaching them to take ownership of their health and health decisions, but to be 
uh, to transition to a more adult model of being able to access healthcare services. So while all that's going on, we are adding the additional barriers of not being able to walk in, but knowing how to access your doctor through different types of appointments, having access to the technology to be able to do that, uh, and being able to relate to a person about personal health issues in a way that might be different than the way that you relate to them face-to-face. So I think those are additional barriers that we are negotiating as we try to increase access to health services in the time of social distancing during this pandemic. So something you mentioned there is the ability to access the appointment at all. So we kind of do two types of appointments here at AHC. We do appointments maybe for our younger adolescents that the parents really help coordinate. And then we do appointments that our adolescents coordinate independently. And these can be related to contraception or they can just general health visits. How are we getting, how are we getting the message out about our telehealth and how are we getting the Zoom link to these teenagers? So right now, the only process for communicating about telehealth services is the standard process that is being used for all families in pediatrics, which are mostly directed at parents, but can be understood by youth who can engage at that level. So the typical process is if someone calls to make an appointment, we offer them a video appointment. And if they agree to one, we go through a specific process of getting them into the video visit, which includes generating an email, for an example, with a link to the appropriate application and information about the meeting details that allows them to use the application for that specific encounter. One of the things that concerns us is not all teenagers have emails, especially younger ones, and all teenagers under 18 should be able to access care independently for confidential issues. Those laws are designed to remove access barriers. So in the case where teenagers might not have access to email, which is the way that we communicate your visit information, or in the rarer case where they might not have access to a smartphone or a device or even the internet, they would not be able to access this technology. We have started to communicate that we're available on telehealth and started to think about different ways that teenagers can connect to us besides the typical email and you calling us for an appointment route. Okay, so now we bypassed some barriers. The teen maybe has email or maybe their parent to help them coordinate a visit. And now you're starting the visit. Initially, when we start a telehealth visit, we do have a consent that we obtain that's sort of starting a conversation about the fact that this is the same as an in-office visit in terms of billing and that, that there will be differences legally. How do we think about consenting parent versus teen? So our approach has been to consent both parents and teens. If you walked in as a teenager with your parent, for example, for a school physical, we would take time to address both the parents' concerns and the teenager's concern. So one thing that is remarkable about adolescent medicine is it's not, it's kind of a dyad. We treat the patient, we recognize the parent as a critical role in the teenager's lives. And sometimes we are treating the interaction of the parent guardian and the teenager as well. So I think it's important to consent both parties. One of our concerns is that the consent language that you just rattled off is not the is not immediately accessible and understandable to especially younger youth. I mean, it's not always accessible to anybody (laughs) in terms of what are the legal implications of this visit? What are the limitations of medicine when we do it through this different form? Getting your patients from a place of, oh, this is great, I can do my visit over video, to really thinking about 
what if there was something on physical exam that the doctor can't get? And and how is my diagnosis going to be maybe a little bit less certain over telehealth? This is this, is this kind of thing you're referring to? Correct. And I think that's the reason it's important to consent someone, that they understand that everything that we would do in person, we can't do all of that. So you're essentially consenting for a different type of care because the way that we make medical decisions is dependent upon the information that we can gather. And the information that we can gather on video is not the same as what we can gather in person. Though we are trying to be creative in terms of information that we can observe over video and even, you know, asking patients, well, what do you think the size of the lump is? Is it like a grape, a cherry, a small plum? So we're developing all these techniques to be able to better collect information on video besides what we can visually inspect. The other aspect to the consent besides sort of the limitations of the data that we can gather in that modality is the idea that this is a medical visit like any other visit. It's a billable visit. And we've had some families who have said, well, you know what, I'm not going to participate in this visit until I can make sure that my insurance actually covers it. So that's something that has come up in this crisis as telehealth services were not considered the same as medical visits. So billing strategies differed from insurance providers. And until this recent crisis, there wasn't a push to have everybody to cover that type of care. Now we've had a lot of emergency regulations that are trying to support connecting with our patients virtually, but it still falls on the insurance carrier to make the decision. So the family I was talking about, they hung up, they said, we need to check with our insurance. They verified that their insurance company had changed their policy to start covering those visits, and then they called us back so that they can complete their visit. But everybody deserves that disclosure up front and the chance to investigate for themselves, especially in a time where a lot of people aren't working and there might be financial barriers as well to accessing care that didn't previously exist. Oh, wow. So insurance is such a concrete barrier in terms of will they even cover this visit and is the family going to end up with a couple hundred dollar bill? Exactly. So this is something that was not always covered and there are great efforts now to make sure that we are able to interact with patients even by telephone and have that service covered by health insurance so patients and their families do not incur extra costs. Something that you had mentioned is the limitations of the physical exam. We do a lot of sexual health in this clinic. It's a big point of entry for our patients. Can you talk about the limits of the physical exam in this regard? So this is something that we are finding that we're having to negotiate. One service that we provide that is unique that makes us different from other pediatricians is that teenagers often come to us with concerns about about sexual health, reproductive health. We're doing a lot of talking about safety and contraception, and sometimes that involves inspecting parts of the bodies that would be considered sensitive, and that is not simply something that we cannot do right now on video. The other dimension of that is that teenagers are sometimes used to oversharing on video, and we have had patients that have gotten into situations because of what they have shared on social media that maybe they shouldn't have shared, and there are also laws (laughs) about what can be shared in digital environments with regards to minors. So we have to be very respectful of those boundaries. 
especially when our patients may not automatically have such boundaries when we are negotiating care. We must make sure that care is safe within the limits of the law. And that is another consideration in terms of the limitations of the care that we can provide. When we are talking about essential care, what absolutely has to be in the clinic, a lot of what we bring in the clinic is follow-up GYN exams, for example, that we're not able to do over video. But we're also doing more thinking about what we can treat empirically, meaning if we don't have a confirmation of a diagnosis, but we have a high clinical suspicion, what things can we do in terms of treatment just based on the data that we do have without a confirmatory test, including maybe the necessary physical exam or the lab sample that we need? How do we extend the boundaries of that care while keeping within safe limitations of what can be shared through telehealth? How would you think about maybe empiric treatment over the phone for something like an STI? So luckily, we have the experience of other organizations, both internationally and colleagues who practice in different settings to guide us. So for example, the World Health Organization, who has experience in syndromic testing of STIs from having to practice in areas where the lab testing that we have here in the United States may not be readily available to confirm a diagnosis. So they do have practice guidelines for how to treat people based on symptoms only that they have developed for situations in which a confirmatory lab test is not possible. I'd love to hear more about the confidentiality aspect of the adolescent visit when you're doing it over telehealth. Have our teens been able to talk to us without their parents knowing or without their parents hearing? So that's something that it's very important to be deliberate about ensuring when we start a video visit with a teen. Where are they? Who can hear them? Are they aware that we might be talking about and asking them questions requiring answers about things that are confidential? We have the benefit of our mental health colleagues' experience in talking about sensitive information with their clients. So something that they have taught us is when we connect with a teen online, making sure we ask them, where are you? You know, are you safe? Is anybody around? We can do things like suggest the use of headphones. And we had one practitioner who was creative enough to come up with a sort of head nod system. If you're having this, you know, nod your head once or twice. We've been in some situations in which teenagers don't have access to private space. For example, if they live in a you know studio apartment with four other people or if they share a, a room with a sibling, we have connected with youth in group homes or shelters where there simply isn't such thing as private space. We've connected with youth who have private space, but they're seeking care for a confidential issue that maybe their parent doesn't know about. So their space has to be extra private in order to protect the privacy of the visit. And I've heard stories so far about people going for walks in the backyard, about people doing a nod yes and no with headphones in, about people doing an open a Word document, and now we're doing a Zoom screen share, and we can type back and forth for a couple of these things. And I think it's neat. Do you have a little spiel that you would have sort of on tap and ready for teens to be like, hey, this isn't, you know, go get your headphones, make sure you're confidential, things like that? So we're developing plain language templates that will allow our providers to do this in a more scripted manner. I think one thing you'll learn about providers who 
whose heart is in treating teenagers is that we are a motley crew. And we all, I joke sometimes that we're all archetypes of some person you knew in high school or whom you sat next to in math class. And when residents come through, I always encourage them to listen to how other people interview. So the way that we approach sensitive topics can really vary according to what someone's clinical style is. But yes, we are developing more standardized language for things to ensure confidentiality. So for example, where are you right now? Is there anybody, are you in a private space where we can have a private conversation and then making concrete suggestions for how to make that space more private or even offering another time for the call? I think we could do a better visit giving teen-specific pre-visit information to prepare for your visit. You should make sure that when you call us, X, Y, and Z are happening. So I think we can wrap our minds around that in a variety of ways. One, providing good pre-visit guidance. Two, having a few simple questions that we can confirm that the teen is in a safe and confidential space. And then three, which I think is the most unique to clinical style, is being able to approach the issue of confidentiality and sensitivity in the way that we usually do, regardless of whether or not we're acting face-to-face or via telehealth with teenage patients. Now, one thing that you also mentioned briefly is the physical space that we're meeting the teenager in. What are the bad things and the good things about meeting the teenager themselves in their home or their living environment or wherever they are? So an interesting thing is uh, you can get to know a lot about a person by looking around their bedroom. As more and more of us are doing telehealth, we're asked to be sensitive to what our backgrounds are, to make sure they're not detracting from what our patient or our client is seeing or experiencing with regards to their interaction with us. And the exactly the converse can be considered. So we don't do a lot of home visits anymore in modern medicine. But when you look at our colleagues who do, for example, early intervention, practitioners or home health nurses, taking care of a person in their own environment, you learn so much more about the dynamics of what's affecting their life and their healthcare choices. The other thing that we're noticing is that patients and their parents are simply more relaxed. It's scary to come to the hospital. You probably had to get on a bus and maybe you were late for your appointment and who knows how long you were waiting. In the waiting room, we're finding that people are more likely to be on time and when we actually engage with them, it's easier for them because they're just more relaxed and in their elements. So I think in some ways it takes away some of that power differential and the anxiety of simply being in a doctor's office. Accessibility of the video visit really improving the mood of the the visit. I think so. I think it allows people to sort of engage with their feelings and their questions more honestly because it's they're in their environment and you're meeting them where they're at, which is a a great theme in adolescent medicine is meeting your patient, your youth, your teenager where they're at. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. What else should we keep in mind as we move towards interacting with these adolescents electronically? So the most exciting thing about interacting with adolescents electronically is I think it will bring us to places that we could never go with face-to-face care. When I alluded to the different barriers that prevent a teen with a problem or a concern and all the steps that have to happen before they end up in front of me, my dream is all that stuff can not go away, but we can really push boundaries with the kind of care that we can give to teens because we have a way to overcome boundaries that we didn't have before. We have services 
for example, gender health services. There are not enough gender care providers to meet the need. And trans youth have so many barriers to care already. If we could bring this care through telehealth into their own space, like what are the possibilities? There are so many subpopulations of youth who are uninsured or underinsured underserved and have developmentally normal barriers to care. What are the possibilities of this new modality in reaching kids who could never reach us before through normal healthcare channels? So that's what I encourage everybody to think about. Not just, can I do normal medicine this way, but how do we do it better? And how do we reach more people who we never could reach before? Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Our closing question is either one thing you learned recently that you can't get out of your head or your favorite thing about being an adolescent med doc. Well, no offense, but I prefer teenagers and youth to adults. (laughs) They're just at such an amazing time where their drive to live and do new things is so intense. I always talk about the moment when a teenager or a youth crosses through the rye, right? When they fall into those fixed, established patterns of adult behavior that drive us crazy even about ourselves. But as you are reinventing yourself, figuring out who you are, there are just so many possibilities. And to be part of the process that opens those possibilities instead of closes them is an extraordinary experience. Teenagers talk to you. They are trying to figure out who they are, what they want to do, And if you can help them through that process, it's really the most amazing thing. What a great episode. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Dr. Kapoon and Hallers has so many good points when it comes to adolescence. Yeah, absolutely. I think adolescent visits can already be a little challenging, even when you're in person. So going through some tips to make it smoother over the computer makes a big difference. Right? I could not agree more. So we know that you all are having your own telemedicine experiences too. Please reach out to us at pedsadmin at gmail.com and just tell us what's been happening. Yeah, this is a super dynamic area of medicine right now. So if there's anything that we left out, we want to hear from you. And see you next time. Yes, see you next time.